Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 21, and if this generation could pick one Shakespeare quote (laughs) to describe its philosophy of life, it would probably be, to thine own self be true. Have you heard that Shakespeare quote? Uh, It's from Hamlet. And the modern way that that is often said is, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. You see it in movies and TV shows and hear versions of it on songs and things like that. What's so ironic about that Shakespeare quote is that in Hamlet, do you know who speaks those words in Hamlet? Hamlet's character, Polonius, who is actually a great fool. (laughs) And he says, to thine own self be true, as he's passing along life advice to his son. But as the Hamlet play unfolds, Polonius has more and more problems as he lives out his foolish life philosophy, to thine own self be true rather than to God be true, rather than to God's word be true, rather than to uh, what your society and country need from you be true. Uh, to thine own self be true. But no, you'll lie to yourself, right? That's why the Bible says, verse Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, what does it lead to? Death, you've heard that. In the end, it leads to death. Uh, How about this one, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately wicked or sick. Wicked. Who can understand it? So godly people in the Bible submitted what their emotions were feeling and what their minds were thinking to God's truth. I love Psalm 139. It's uh, just about perfect. I mean, well, all God's Word is perfect, right? But I just love Psalm 139. You know, it's the one that talks about how He formed us, and it's got a tribute to God's uh, omniscience, that He's all-knowing, His omnipotence, His power, uh, His presence. He's omnipresent. And then, of course, that He's omni-just. And it ends up by... um, Verses 23 and 24 that say, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. So instead of following our own heart, God's Word says we're to follow His Word. We're to submit what we're thinking and feeling to God's Word. And, you know, when I think one thing and God thinks another, He's supposed to win. (laughs) That's what lordship means, yielding to Him, right? The book of Proverbs presents, presents two ways to live. The way of the wise and the way of the foolish. Uh, Polonius was a fool. He said to thine own self be true. God's word says, search me, God. Know my heart. Lead me in the way everlasting. If there's anything offensive in me, I want to change it. Um, Now, the believers we've seen throughout Acts have modeled this for us. Paul has modeled for us being true to God, being true to your life mission. In today's passage, we're once again to see the steps that he was willing to take to be true to God and the mission God had on his life. So Acts 21, and we're going to read verse 15 through 26. It says, And after those days, we, so Luke's still in on this deal, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. They were actually traveling down, but everywhere's up to Jerusalem. 
Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Verse 17, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told him in detail, Paul told them in detail, those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, when those elders and James heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, now, now you see, Paul, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So listen, not only have a whole bunch of Gentiles believed, but a whole bunch of Jews have believed. It's great. Verse 21, But these Jews have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to their customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. And he's talking about the Sanhedrin there. They're, that Jewish Sanhedrin, they're going to meet and they're going to have a plan to deal with you, Paul. So verse 23, Therefore the elders told Paul, Do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow, probably the Nazarite vow, described in the Scriptures, take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we've written and decided that they should observe no such thing. He's talking about that Acts 15 council, except that the Gentile Christians should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. They don't otherwise have to obey the things in the Jewish law. The, the, we'll talk about that, the, the ceremonial and the... Uh, civil part of the law. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. And we've titled this that Paul was adaptable, but he was not a pragmatist. Uh, and we'll talk about what that means, the difference between um, adapting uh, to uh, reach out to people and being a pragmatist that says the end justifies the means. And so even if we do things that uh, don't seem, uh, you know, kosher or right, if we get a result, then it's okay. Uh, no, everything needs to be submitted to the scriptures. So Paul uh, is, was adaptable, but he was not a pragmatist who said, well, the ends justify the means. I ho hope you understand that. We'll talk more about it. So verses 15 through 17 show Paul and those traveling with him going to Jerusalem. Verse 15 says they went up even though they traveled south because in their mindset it was always going up to go up to Mount Zion where the temple was and where God was to be worshipped. So reverently they said up. Uh, of course I was talking to a guy today. Uh, where did I meet? Oh yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, I was talking to him. He's originally from New Jersey and he talked about coming up here. I thought, well you came here from New Jersey? What are you talking about going up? <laughs> and I don't know if that's just how they teach geography in New Jersey or whatever. It's like, man, if you're here in Virginia, you came down. <laughs> but he said he'd come up here from New Jersey. And it's like, what? <laughs> so anyway, they knew their directions better than this fellow I talked to today did, you know. But um, they understood that up was Jerusalem in their minds, in their hearts. Um, even around the world today, when Jews take the Passover, they say next year in Jerusalem as they toast, do that final toast, because they're like, next year we're going to do this in Jerusalem. 
because they Messiah will come and we'll be able to do that. You know, that's what their hope and prayer is. But anyway, in verse 16, we learn they stayed with Mason, who was a Cypriot. He was from Cyprus and an early disciple. His Greek means that he was a Hellenistic Jew. Remember me explaining that mean, meant that he was a Greek background Jew. Uh, so he had a Jewish background, but from one of the Greek speaking areas. As such, he probably would have been more comfortable hosting a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile Christians because Paul had a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile Christians with him. If by early disciple, it means he was saved on the day of Pentecost, he would be another source of information for Luke like Philip was. So remember Paul and the traveling band stayed with uh, Philip and his four daughters? And that's probably where Luke just got some even more information about the early days of the faith and about Brother Stephen and stuff. And maybe Mason filled in some of that too. So, so we want to look just a little bit about those things. Now, who else have we learned about in the book of Acts that was a Cypriot from the island of Cyprus? Do you remember? One of the greatest characters there was. Barnabas. Barnabas, yeah, that's right, good. Start of the day. Acts chapter 4, Barnabas, Mr. Encouragement, even though his name was Joseph. Um, so that's pretty cool. Well, do you know who in the church has Cyprus ties? Yeah, Daniel D. Therese. And you may know also that he actually served in the army over there, which is pretty interesting, you know, uh, that he was a missionary kid who, well, his dad, dad's a native Cypriot, so he uh, served in the army over there, which is really neat. Um, but anyway, verse 17 lets us know they were gladly welcomed in Jerusalem, and the big relief offering they had with them from the largely Gentile churches may have had something to do with that. So we've been talking about this offering and them bringing it uh, from some of the books of the Bible. Several uh, of Paul's letters refer to this offering they were collecting because there was a famine in Jerusalem and they were bringing this to help uh, get resources for um, Jewish background Christians, but also it looks like the Jewish people as well, just like we do through our help to friends. Uh, we, we budget the Friends of Israel that does hands-on things and every once in a while, you know, we take up a nice offering for um, the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Uh, and those adorn the gospel that uh, missionaries are trying to proclaim. Uh, got a nice note uh, because we were able to receive several gifts in here that we passed along uh, after Brother Lamar died since that was so much on his heart. So just another way uh, that we give. Heard another great, just to pause here for a second. We know how big Pastor Lamar's heart was, how generous he was. And um, uh, so recently uh, we... Um, heard about uh, a man testified to us. Um, actually, he was helping us with a, a detail to, to get everything right for um, TLC next year and stuff. Uh, but um, he has some exposure to the um, group Habitat for Humanity. And um, he remembered uh, that they had to suspend one time uh, building a house because they didn't have enough. Uh, and next thing he knows, uh, he's, uh, his secretary is saying, Lamar Mooneyham wants to see you, pastor at the Tabernacle. And he let him in, and Lamar gave him a check from the church for $3,500. And then you probably remember uh, some of that got in the Christmas offering too, uh, an even bigger amount uh, in the, uh, the year after that to, to help them uh, get back on track since they were behind in funds and stuff. But Lamar had such a big heart, particularly to get uh, families in homes and stuff that needed a little help. 
So let's get back to the... Uh, there's two points this text makes, these 11 verses. The first one is the apostle models submission. So there's your fill in the blank. Submission to a local church's leadership. So verse 18 says something very interesting. It says, let me get it right here. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And some say the Jerusalem church might have had as many as 70 elders like the Sanhedrin. And I don't know about that, you know, but I do know that the leadership transition in Jerusalem uh, was, was now complete. So this is what we can gather from the book of Acts. It's obvious in the first six chapters of Acts, the apostles, a plural group of male leaders led by Peter, it's obvious that Peter and the apostles functioned as the first church leadership team for the church in Jerusalem. No doubt about it, right? In Acts 6, they raise up deacons to help meet needs, but it's obvious that they're going to retain the preaching and the leading of the church and stuff like that, you know. Now, what did we see in Acts chapter 15? We saw a council that was called that involved Christians from the Gentile areas, including the church at Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas as missionaries had come with that team down to Jerusalem. Peter and uh, others were there, but also there was James, the brother of uh, Jesus. And it's obvious by Acts 15 that Peter and the other apostles had started to leave Jerusalem and go to different places to supervise works as they got going. And what was left in Jerusalem was now a group called elders, that James, the brother of Jesus, was the first among the equals of. He was the leaders of. So it was first the apostles leading the church in Jerusalem. As they went around to all their places, a set of um, James and the elders were leading. And now in Acts 21, we've got Paul, who's an apostle of the worldwide church. I mean, he's such a key role with Peter in the extension of the gospel there in the first century. But he comes to Jerusalem and he and the team with him come into the, leaders, the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem. It says he went into James and the elders. So this is not James, the brother of, uh, I mean, the brother of John. How do we know it's not James, the brother of John? What happens in Acts 12? He gets killed. <laughs> he gets killed for the faith. Uh, so the, in Acts 15, it's already the other James, whose brother's name is Jude. And James and Jude, the letters that are in your Bible, those are both half-brothers of Jesus. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. It's really neat because there was a time the brothers did not believe in Jesus. But once he rose from the dead, they were among those who said, He's not just our big brother, he's God. <laughs> and so they worshipped him and followed him. And so this is what's going on. Jerome, not the, not the Michael Jackson brother, but <laughs> Jerome, the early church scholar, tells us that James, this James, was pastor in Jerusalem for 30 years until the seventh year of Nero. So he's a pastor, and I think I've already told you the word pastor, that is like a shepherd, the word elder, which shows spiritual maturity, uh, an older, an elder, and the word um, uh, overseer, bishop, are all three used interchangeably, pastor, teacher, 
uh, um, uh, pastor, shepherd, teacher, uh, then um, elder and overseer or bishop. Those are all used interchangeably to describe the leaders, not just one, but the leaders of the early church. And a church like ours, you know, recognizes me as the senior pastor, the first among equals, but we too have godly men that are leaders in the church to help lead the church to all that we do. So uh, look at verse 23. These elders say, therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Therefore, do what we tell you. That's the main part. So Paul, get this, Paul is the apostle who's writing New Testament scripture even. He comes to Jerusalem and he submits himself to a local church's leadership base. You get what's happening there? I mean, um, we should not miss, here's your fill in the blank, that this supports the autonomy of local churches. And when I say autonomy, uh, it's the same word we mean when we say the word independent. So the tabernacle was founded as an independent Baptist church, and guess what? We are still independent. What that means is we're autonomous. Now we have, for mission purposes, affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention through the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia. Um, but nobody in Richmond tells us what to do. Nobody in Nashville tells us what to do. We follow what we believe the Lord tells us to do as a local church here. And, um, and, and the, you know, so in that sense, Southern Baptists are not a denomination the way Methodists are a denomination or other denominations that are more hierarchical. In hierarchical denominations, what happens? You've got a local church, but the local church pastors are responsible to the bishop who's over a certain number of churches. And then there's a bigger bishop somewhere, an archbishop sometime that's over even more. And the Roman Catholic Church goes all the way up to having a pope over the work of global Christendom, right? And if that's how it's supposed to be, what would you expect to see here? You'd expect to see the church saying, hey, Paul, it's great that you're here. What do you have to tell us that we've got to do here in Jerusalem? Instead, he's coming there and saying, look, I want to be sensitive to what you guys need of me in your local context here. So he submits himself to them. And every guest speaker we ever have come in needs to do the same thing, you know, submit to how the Holy Spirit's been working through the Tabernacle Church. They come in as our guest and we have the, uh, you know, right from scriptures like this to say, you have not done what we needed you to do here related to preaching the word. You're out, you know. And so that's why one of the things we're looking is to say, Pastor Danny and any speaker that speaks, what they say needs to square with the scriptures because scriptures are authority. It's our final authority. And so we all submit to it. So uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And Paul himself, the great apostle, modeled submission to the local church's leadership, which is pretty cool. What else did Paul model here? It's the rest of the passage here. Paul models adapting, so there's that word adapting again, to a different cultural context, to a different cultural context. So look again at verses 19 and 20. When he agreed to them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. 
But then look what it says. But they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Verse 21, But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, not, nor to walk according to the custom. So he submits himself to the board there, this new, this, these leaders of the church. And he gives testimony about how God's working on the mission field. And people from radically different backgrounds than Jews are coming to Christ. And we know that part of what they had done as they reached out to those Gentiles and won them to the gospel and talked to those new churches was they read the Jerusalem letter from Acts 15 that we saw, you know, and they refer to it here. And then the board, the elders, they remind Paul and they say, listen, remember, you're back in where Jews, Judaism's everything. You know, you're back in Jerusalem now. And we've got Jews that are coming to Christ. And most of them are going to continue to circumcise their children. They're going to continue to follow the Hebrew calendar. And we're okay with that. You know, we would never say that the Gentile living somewhere else has to, you know, observe the Jewish calendar or circumcise their children, right? But remember where you are, Paul. You're back here now. And a lot of lies are going out there about you. People are saying that you, 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 you hate our customs and, and, and those things. And so we need you to do something that shows a little respect for where you're at because you're here now, not there. Do you all track what's happening in this passage? Pretty, pretty wild. Um, so they quickly go from praise uh, for what they'd, the praising God for what they'd seen. They go from that to prudent advice. And that's sometimes what elders have to do. So that second part of verse 20, Paul, there are thousands of Jewish believers still zealous for the law. But by this, they would have meant the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law that had been part of their culture for over 2,000 years. Uh, unlike the Judaizers, these believers did not view the law as a means of salvation. So there's a, there's a cult within uh, Judaism that is embracing Jesus a little bit, but they're saying you've got to do all these things to be saved. And what they're saying is, no, that's not who these are, Paul, because um, we've already dealt with that at the Jerusalem Council back in Acts uh, uh, 15. So Jerusalem was usually between 25,000 and 50,000 people. But as they spoke these words to Paul, it was the Feast of Pentecost, and hundreds of thousands of extra Jewish background people were in Jerusalem for the feast, and they were from all over the Roman Empire. And most, and many of them would have been those Judaizers that Paul had dealt with all over the Roman Empire. Some of these riots we've been hearing about were instigated by Judaizers around. And they've been told, so the Judaizers had poisoned the water with their other Jewish friends, uh, and they had said, Paul's going to teach you to abandon uh, your culture, your Jewish background. You know, I think about the statement, rumors don't have a leg to stand on, but they sure travel fast, right? <laughs> and you've heard that. Here's how John MacArthur said it in his study Bible. The Judaizers were spreading false reports that Paul was teaching Jewish believers to forsake their heritage. That he had not abandoned Jewish customs is evident from his circumcision of Timothy back in chapter 16 and his own taking of a Nazarite vow in chapter 18. So you remember, just like many Jews before him had done, he had taken a Nazarite vow and shaved his head, and it's uh, you know, going back out at this point. So here's your fill in the blank. Paul clearly taught in the book of Galatians that following the Old Testament law for salvation was futile, was futile, F-U-T-I-L-E, 
But as an individual Jew, Paul remained a follower of Jewish cultural observances whenever he could. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9.20, he said, I myself am not under the law. For Paul, it was all about Jesus. But Paul was also the kind of guy that said, okay, I want to give, I'm a gospel man. That's the issue. And if I can do something um, that's culturally sensitive that will help me share the gospel, I will do it. So he was willing to set the civil law aside to reach Gentiles. And, you know, we've seen that. Uh, if he was among a bunch of Gentiles and they were having a pork barbecue, he got himself a pork barbecue sandwich, you know, uh, even though he had never eaten like that before as a Jew. Um, and so he was willing to do that. In Romans 14, he makes adherence to cultural norms a matter to be decided by an individual's conscience before God, uh, provided their actions aren't making a weaker brother stumble. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians 9. So before I give you that fill in the blank from that, that passage, let's read it. And some of you may have already become uh, familiar with these words. And again, this has nothing to do with Paul compromising his faith. It's about his willingness to adapt to a situation um, to minister to those uh, there, even as he was trying to get the gospel to permeate an area. So 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, Paul writes... For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, these are the words you're more familiar with. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Verse 23, now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. So Paul wasn't talking about joining anybody and doing sinful things. He wasn't talking about changing his message of repentance and faith. All men need that. But if he went into a town and all the men wore a beard and it was offensive not to, he probably would have grown his out, right? Um, you know, I um, think about this in the different Bibles I use when I speak to different audiences and things. So when I was first a believer, somebody gave me the Living Bible Paraphrase. I read it all the way through in three months. Thought, man, that's neat. I went to Bryan College, and there in their classes, they used the wonderful New American Standard translation. I went all the way through the Bible in the New American Standard. I realized a bunch of people I knew uh, were using the, uh, um, the um, well, another one, so I went through it in another one, you know. Uh, then I went to an independent Baptist church. There they used King James. I used the King James and got opportunities to speak. And when I did there, I used the King James, not my New American Standard and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and so, um, and I've, I've, I've done that ever since, you know. I, um, and, and a good speaker coming into a church will ask that too. He'll say, uh, now, uh, what are y'all used to use? And I'll try to read and preach from that one, you know. Uh, so as not to be an offense to the core of folks that have done that. Now, uh, we have, uh, um, uh, you know, we've just grown a lot in worries about the legalistic parts of all that, you know, but the message to all cultures is that you can be a Christian and keep many aspects of your culture, but don't make those binding on other Christians or let those keep you from fellowshipping with Christians across other cultures. So... You know, when missionaries go to a other nation and all the people there wear a different type of dress than a suit, 
uh, many missionaries have said, hey, this is the normal things they wear as they go throughout life. And every once in a while, what do we do? Have a missionary speaker come in and what will he wear? He'll wear the same kind of robe he wears when he's trying to reach the people of the country that he's living in and stuff like that. And that's the kind of thing that we mean by adaptation and that Paul was willing to model. But look at verses 23 and 24. Therefore, do what we tell you, Paul. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all watching may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So that's good leadership there. Paul, what the people are saying is not true, but the elders uh, knew way too many people believed it to be true. So they didn't take out an ad on the Jerusalem po- in the Jerusalem Post. They said, Paul, everybody's going to be watching. When you take those guys there, you pay for them before the priest to have the vow fulfilled, and you do it too to show that you care deeply about all of our Jewish customs and culture, you being one of them, even though everybody knows you're out there winning a bunch of Gentiles to Jesus also. So Paul was not compromising on doctrine, but on cultural norms, adapting himself, and once again, the word for you is cultural, to the cultural norms he had always lived by anyway. The big word missionaries use for this is the word contextualization. Uh, contextualization, right? And what that means is if uh, you go to a country and they're all wearing robes, and that's kind of how they usually go about that, uh, wear, wear robes like that. You know, if you, and, and so what you're doing is you're trying to say, you're trying to model what Jesus did in John 1. It says he came and tabernacled among us, right? And so the people of the first century wore robes and sandals. He wore robes and sandals, right? If Jesus had come in the year 2023, 20, uh, you know, he'd wear probably the business casual of the day. You know, that would not have been what singled him out was being here in the year 2023 with a robe and sandals. Right. So that's what we're talking about there. And so that's interesting to see as we go through. Uh, again, in verse 23, it talks about this vow that they were taking, probably number six, the Nazarite vow that symbolized total devotion to God. That's probably what they were doing. Uh, it covered a lot of different areas, a call to serve the people of Israel somehow. It uh, just a time of dedication to the Lord. Um, usually they'd shave their head and the hair would start growing. And until they felt like the, uh, they'd finished that vow, the hair would just keep on growing. You know, so a Jewish man might have hair, you know, down, down halfway, look like uh, one of the rock stars or something like that, you know. And when the vow was finally fulfilled, he'd go ahead and be the first time he'd get his next haircut and stuff like that. And so it was a visual reminder, oh, why are you growing your hair out? Well, I feel like God laid it on my heart to take the Nazarite vow. And every time people ask me why you're growing your hair out, I'll be able to tell them because God you know, has showed me how badly our people need to repent. Some of the prophets did it that way, right? Why aren't you getting your hair cut? Well, it's to show our need to repent. Um, now, uh, you know, it's interesting when you read through the prophets, uh, they got some other ways of uh, getting the people's attention and stuff like that. You ever uh, seen that passage in Jeremiah? where he's preaching to them and they're all standing before him, right? And the other preachers were saying, oh man, uh, this is going to be great. Uh, You know, God's going to bless us again. This captivity is going to be a short time. Then we get to uh, experience God's blessings again. And Jeremiah said, here's the reality. And he took a clay pot, held it up, 
dropped it and it broke and shattered and made a lot of noise in front of all the people. And he said, that's what God's going to do to us uh, during this time of this breaking, you know, uh, and then he'll, he, he's, he won't be done with us, but that's what's really happening, not uh, times of plenty. Um, so from Acts 18, 18, again, we know that Paul still participated in the Nazarite vow. Um, so this probably did achieve the purpose of impressing those fellow Jewish Christians who the Judaizers were trying to deceive. It may not have impressed the Judaizers, but the guys that uh, were already walking with Christ and already learning some of Scripture would have been impressed by Paul's example that the gospel was the main thing. And he was showing this ability to be like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. And he's, he, he's modeling that humility and servant's heart right here. Um, so verse 26 tells us uh, what Paul did in response to them asking him to do this. Paul did. He took the men, the four men, and the next day, having been purified with them, he entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So he did it. Now, do you like J. Vernon McGee? I like J. Vernon McGee. Here's what he said about this. Friend! You don't have to take a vow, but if you want to take a vow, you can. If you want to shave your head with a vow, that's your business. It's all right with the Lord. Under grace, you have a right to do those things. Under grace, you have the right to make a vow if you want to do so, just so you understand that you're not, a, not saved by what you do, but by the grace of God. And that's what the old master, J. Vernon McGee, said about it. So um, adaptable, uh, but not um, just trying to be pragmatic. Um, so, there are, uh, as, as we, we often see with our missionaries that's, that we send out, there are cultural accommodations that can be made that not only don't jeopardize the gospel, but help lost people be more ready to hear the gospel. Um, and uh, there's another thing that is bad, and that's compromising the message, compromising the Bible, compromising our integrity on sexual issues or anything like that. An example is watering down the message. Well, they don't like to hear the word repent, so I won't use the word repent. Well, that's, that's wrong. That's compromise, right? It's, it's one thing uh, to um, you know, show that you're a servant and that you're willing to uh, you know, dress the way the majority dress without it being immodest or something like that. It's another thing to um, compromise and say, you know, some of the things that false teachers are saying. You know, we often pick on Joel Osteen, you know, but it's very evident that he's compromised the message of the Bible because people don't want to hear the word repent. It's very obvious that this kind of compromise is going on by Andy Stanley down in Atlanta. You know, uh, the word for a homosexual is to repent. It's not, uh, boy, we're glad you're, you you come, despite you know how, how many of us feel that you're in sin. You know, it's uh, yeah, well, anybody in sexual sins in sin, including you, and so repent. And so a fornicator needs to repent, an adulterer needs to uh, repent, a homosexual does, and that's our message: that sex is a special gift for within marriage. Everything else needs to be repented of. So, so many preachers today are not preaching repent, believe, and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Instead, they're trying to make the message itself more palatable. And the gospel is inherently offensive. 
It says, you know, the guy wrote a book a long time ago, said, I'm okay, you're okay. The gospel says, I'm not okay, you're not okay. Jesus is wonderful. He's completely okay. Never sinned. And because he didn't sin, he's able to be a savior to us. But the only way you can access his salvation is by acknowledging your need as a sinner, you know. So the gospel is inherently offensive. It says, if you do not change, you'll die and go to hell. You've got to be converted by Jesus. You must be born again. And so, uh, you know, um, there's so many false preachers. They say, well, God, we want people to know that God's for them. Well, not until you repent. He's not. He's positionally against you, you know, uh, if you don't repent. Um, so as people are increasingly looking for churches, uh, uh, you know, um, where they hear these um, these uh, false gospel ideas preached and compromised, not um, simple adapting to uh, in, in, matter, in non-essential matters. That's the key, whether something's essential or non-essential. You know, whether men wear hats to church like they did in the 50s, you know, every man came to church with a hat on in the 50s, and now nobody comes to church with a hat on. You know, I think we always knew you're supposed to take it off when you go inside church. You know, there's some people today that don't know that and, and have to be taught based on what Corinthians says. Um, so that's a non-essential. An essential is repent and you must be born again. The final thing you have here is adaptation needs to go both ways. Younger toward older, older toward younger. Um, you know, in missionary uh, congregations uh, overseas, when a um, when the people get saved, they need to uh, you know learn what they can from their missionaries. But stronger Christians have greater responsibility to make accommodations for gospel witness to unbelievers and for the growth of weaker believers. The strongest man in Christ in the room was the Apostle Paul, and he could have said to all those elders. You're being you're you're too worried about being sensitive and accommodating and, and adapting to those uh, Judaizers and those you know those guys out there. I'm going to tell you we don't need to worry about any of that anymore. You know, but Paul's like you know you're right on those non-essential things. If I will go ahead and continue to follow Jewish culture, those guys will hear and be saved, and then maybe one day they won't worry about it like they do now. Um, one of my greatest disappointments as a pastor is the the clear. Um, words in the book of Romans um, to not make weaker brothers stumble. Um, and how few very mature Christians practice those words. The, the most offended people often in church are those that ought to be trying to reach out to those that don't get it yet. Lost people act lost because they're lost. Baby Christians don't do what a 30-year Christian does yet because they just don't know yet. And we need to uh, set aside our, our judginess sometimes and go to them and, 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 and not just put a whole bunch of isms on them, but say, you know, look, here's the main things. And they walk through it with them. And over time, they look like a more mature believer and they go from there. Uh, but many times as a pastor, I've been bombarded by people saying, you know, um, this is the way we do it here. We've always done it. And those new people aren't down with the program. And we're talking about non-essential things, not essential things. And on those things, we're supposed to be servants instead of lords, you know. And my disappointment has been how few people practice the weaker brother principle 
that are stronger believers. Usually it's, uh, you know, those saying them new people don't do it like we do. So what are we going to do? You know, so I don't know if you've seen that, too. I sure have. Um, sometimes that's going to make us more strict, sometimes less strict. Um, and it helps us understand choices missionaries have to make. So, for instance, in Muslim lands, they often make the adaptation to have the Christian worship service be Friday at noon. You say, well, wait a second, aren't they supposed to worship on Sunday? Um, well, what they say is, listen, in our countries, under Sharia law, everything stops Friday at noon. Everything stops Friday at noon. There's a whole hour there where nothing else happens. It's probably a good time for us to go ahead and have our Christian worship service while the men are at the mosque, you know. And as we talk to people in the workplace and some of them know Christ, they'll join with us Friday at noon to worship. And so, you say, so, so we have to go back and evaluate, okay, is, it's great to worship on Sunday. It's the first day of the week. The early church did. We can do that. But then Romans says, you know, that there's people that make an idol of the day. Seventh-day Adventists do that. They say it has to be on Saturday. And I don't care if they worship on Jesus on Saturday or not, you know, but uh, I worship them on Sunday, but I worship them every day of the week too, you know. And so uh, sometimes missionaries have made those choices and I don't uh, fault them for that. So those are the kind of things that um, you start looking at when you see how Paul, my headline here in the New King James Version is Paul conforms to Jewish customs. And so he was adaptable, but he was not a compromiser. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.